Hey everybody! Well, looks like um, this shelter-in-place order has been extended for a little while longer, so here we are again coming to you from a place of shelter, trusting that you are keeping well. Living Word, I really miss you, my Living Word family, church, family. I want to thank you again for all of your notes, your encouragement, your comments and shares on the messages that have put, been put out there so far. Man, it is going to be so great when we finally get back together again. Once again, also, I uh, want to say a big welcome to those of you who are joining us from outside of Living Word family. If you have a home church, again, I encourage you to stay faithful to that church. Continue to be a blessing to that church. See what you can do to continue to support your church and pray for your pastor. If uh, you don't have a home church, I can't stress enough to you how important it is to find one. Uh, maybe I'll do a sermon on that sometime soon. Uh, meanwhile, uh, if you're looking and uh, you're nearby, we'd love nothing more than to have you join us when the doors are open again. Let's pray and to get into the Word. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this opportunity to sort of gather in your name. Uh, thank you for the, the technology and the gifts that you've uh, placed in our church to allow us to do this. And thank you for your presence here in this room and in all the homes uh, as people tune in uh, across the town, across the state, and even around the world. Uh, thank you for everything that you desire to speak to us. And we pray, Lord, that you open our eyes, that you open our ears, you open our minds and our hearts to receive everything that you want to speak to us, everything that you desire to deposit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Today, this message features something special. Nothing substantial about COVID-19. Look, this thing is here. I uh, don't know how long it's going to be around, and we need to stay informed. We'll stay on top of it. But one way or another, this crisis is not going to last forever, and God's Word is. So let's keep our focus on that this morning. Of course, it may come up on the oblique. We'll see. Uh, but let's start with this. I was speaking last week about the transformation that takes place or is supposed to take place when we are born again, when we become followers of Christ, and uh, also about how important it is that we submit to that process. This is super important, especially in this day and age. We have, unfortunately, no shortage of preachers and movements and ministries that deliver a message that is often referred to disparagingly, of course, as greasy grace. Now listen carefully, because if we are going to walk freely and righteously, we have to get this nailed down. And every time I speak on this topic, I'm always quick to point out that we will probably always be living with some measure of tension between liberty and legalism. Those things are hard to keep balanced in our minds, they're separate. So let me repeat something I said last week, for starters. There is no one who needs salvation any more than anybody else. And there is no one who deserves salvation more than anybody else. The fall of mankind into sin ultimately infected the entire human race. Sin is in our blood. That is why we read about some of the simply horrible things that good men, men of God did, especially in the Old Testament. I made a reference to that in the newsletter article that you'll be receiving soon. Uh, sinning, as in trespass. Committing sin is the outwork of the sin nature, and it will always produce death. Death is both the result of sin, and it is the punishment, the sentence that sin brings on us in terms of divine judgment. 
But when Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh and in the flesh went to the cross, he took our sin on himself and took that judgment on himself. Uh, When we look to him, when we look to the finished work of the cross, we are forgiven and we receive that sacrifice as a gift and we are saved. We are set free and we no longer need to fear the wrath of God that was poured out on Jesus. This is so utterly true and it is so central to the message of the gospel uh, and so prominent in the epistles that it deserves the attention it gets. And when some people talk uh, about greasy grace, what they're talking about is simply grace. It is simply recognizing that there is nothing I can do, no way I can be good enough to earn my salvation. When Christ said on the cross, it is finished, he meant that. His redemptive work was done. Our salvation and everything included in that salvation package was ours at that point. It was completely paid for at the cross. It is finished. But that does not mean that God is finished with us. And this is where we, the children of God, have to grow up. It's one thing to say, if I sin even after being saved, my sinning is not going to cost me my salvation. That's true. But there have been waves or movements, even in good churches, where the overarching message, at least for a season, has been, it's all grace, bro. Uh, It's all love, man. And uh, anytime anybody tries to offer any sort of correction or rebuke, that's the response. Oh, man, we're not under law. We're under grace. Uh, So uh, it became a no-no to rebuke, to correct, because everything was, all those things were rejected under the label of judgment. And when someone is accused of being legalistic, people are very quick to point out that we are not living under the law. We are in the New Testament, not under the law of the Old Testament. But in doing that, people have ignored the clear New Testament teachings, the writings that talk about simple things, simple things, modest clothing, bad language, honoring authority, imitating Christ, being holy because these things look like works. They look too much like works and we're not saved by works, right? You know, my language, good or bad, doesn't make God love me any less or more. My, uh, my, um, my clothing doesn't make God love me any more or any less. My study habits, my fidelity to my wife, every, and this and a list uh, much longer than that, things that the Bible clearly teaches, but it does not teach that doing these things or not doing these things affect the degree to which God loves us. He loved us first while we were yet sinners. Uh, You take this idea to extremes and you wind up with the problem they had in some of the churches that Paul ministered to and wrote to. This idea that nothing that has to do with our bodies and things that we do in the flesh have any effect on the spiritual at all because our bodies aren't saved, only our spirits are. Therefore, really, it's impossible for the body to sin. So when it came to fleshly lust and sins of the flesh, it was no longer a matter of even forgiveness. It simply redefines sin. The word to describe that mindset is licentious. It's rooted in the word license, and it simply is freedom to sin. And this is where the argument settles down for many. Are we free or are we bound? We're free, right? But we were bound. We were bound to sin. Our nature bound us to sin. Christ's blood and death and resurrection freed us from sin, but he does not free us to sin. He frees us from sin and binds us to himself. 
Here's a simple but important example. If I am free of a wife, which is how Paul described being single, if I'm free of a wife, then I am bound biblically to a celibate lifestyle. But if I am bound to a wife, then I am free to enjoy physical intimacy with her. But if you say, yeah, but at the end of the day, if I gave my life to Christ and I don't live that way, am I going to hell? And the short answer is no. Uh, There's a long conversation we need to have about did you really give your life to Christ? But the fact is, we do indeed, all of us, according to the last informal poll I took, all of us miss it from time to time. We blow it. We sin. Even after our salvation experience. So the discussion about losing your salvation simply becomes a question of degrees, among other things. But that's not what I want to focus on today. What I want to say in response to that attitude is something everyone at Living Word Family Church has heard me say a number of times, and it's this. This is not about you, or more specifically, this is not just about you. The part that's about you, we will all stand before God in judgment. I'm talking about believers, but it's not judgment for our sin. Again, our sin was judged at the cross, where our lives are going to be judged. And so our lives in the flesh can be examined. What did we bring with us? What did we send on ahead? Good works are described as gold, silver, precious stones. These are things that we are using to build our our eternity with. And everything else, including evil deeds, described as wood, hay, and stubble. And the scriptural picture is the whole pile is set on fire, and what's left is our reward. Now, you could say, maybe you're the guy or, or, or the gal who says, look, I really don't care. The only thing that's important to me is I'm not going to hell. I don't care about anything else, so I'm just not going to knock myself out down here. For one thing, let me assure you, you will regret that attitude if you don't change it. For another, though, again, this is not about you. Our faithfulness to God and the way we live in response to his, yes, extravagant grace will have a very real impact on the world. We're going to look at a few passages in Scripture, and we'll start with this one in Romans chapter 2, verse, beginning in verse 21. He writes, You, therefore, who teach another... Do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who made your boast in the law, make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. Now, Paul here in that last bit there in verse 24 is actually quoting the Old Testament. And it's not just one obscure reference. This is one of the major themes of the Old Testament, particularly the writing of the prophets. And this is going to sound like a quick review of all those months and yeah years, I guess, that we spent going through the Old Testament on Sunday mornings. Uh, but for the benefit, especially of newcomers, and because it's been a while, Uh, God's plan to redeem mankind goes all the way back to the garden. Technically, it goes back before that. Um, But I think you know what I'm talking about. But you know what I mean. After he called Abraham, for instance, out of Ur, uh, and promised to bless his descendants, we start tracking the history of the people who would come to be known as Israel. And when God called them, a few hundred years later, out of Egypt, and by the way, 
this is all in one book. You can read this, this groundwork, the first 2,000 years of human history, uh, from the creation to the fall to the flood to the call of Abraham and his, uh, his offspring and their flight into Egypt is all right there in Genesis. I encourage you to read it if it's been a while. But when he called them out of Egypt, he gave them the law. And the law was a code of conduct. And it was a set of instructions on how to worship Jehovah. And yes, uh, it was also a revelation of God as he is. And it was demanding, but built right into it was the sacrifice system. You had this code of conduct and a, a list and details of what was wrong behavior. But God, knowing what we're made of, he knew they wouldn't keep the law perfectly. So built right into the law is, here's what you do when you don't keep the law. And they often blew it. But he brought them out of Egypt and into the land that he swore to give them all of those years before. Made the promise to their ancestors. And it was right smack dab in the middle where they were surrounded by all of these other nations, these other cultures, these other people, these other religions, all these other gods, small g. And God's plan was to set them, as it were, on a city, as a city on a hill, to bless them so abundantly, heal them so completely, and protect them so perfectly that the surrounding nations couldn't help but notice how good God was being to them, how good their God was being to them. God's desire was to see the nations drawn to him through his people, Israel. Now, nothing takes God by surprise, but you really can read almost an exasperation in his words when he centuries later rebuked them through the prophets. And one of my favorite lines of argument that he uses is best represented in Jeremiah chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 9, but this is a great chapter to read. Where the Lord says, Therefore I bring charges against you again, declares the Lord. I will bring charges against your children's children. Cross over to the coasts of Cyprus and look. Send to Kedar and observe closely. See if there has ever been anything like this. Has a nation ever changed its gods? Yet they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Can you hear what I'm talking about? Go and look around at these heathen nations. You know, you know that the gods they serve are not real. They have no power. And you know, and they know the history that you have with me, the one true God. And of all these nations, there's only one in the whole mix that ever actually converted, that changed gods. And what do you know? It's the one nation that actually had the true God in the first place. They are more faithful to their false gods than you are to me, the real one. And who was going to suffer for that failure? Israel was, of course, Judah was, but so were the surrounding nations. Because Israel disobeyed and didn't live according to the law that God gave them, the nations surrounding them were robbed of this picture of God that they needed to see. Instead of turning to God and blessing him, they were blaspheming him. And why? Because the people of God were not living like the people of God. And it's amazing even today how much we expect the world, as in, for instance, the U.S. government, to respect and honor the word of God when so many of us who are called by his name live no differently 
than the godless society that we rail against. And this kind of reminds me of a little story. It's not a perfect story to illustrate this, but I was thinking about it when I wrote this. And you may have heard it. And it's, it's apocryphal to say the least, but I like it. It's a story of a little tavern in Texas. Some versions of the town even named the tavern and named and name the town. But uh, there was a bar, a tavern that was expanding its operations. They were adding on, increasing the size of their building and trying to up their business. And the church nearby was protesting this. They didn't like the idea. And the pastor even led his congregation in prayer against the success of this business. And some point shortly thereafter, a storm comes up, lightning strikes the tavern and burns it to the ground. And the church was pretty smug about this, patting themselves on the back until they got notice that they were being sued by the tavern owner for bringing that destruction on his place. And they dismissed it, and they said, they, they, of course, disavowed any responsibility for the destruction of the church. And the judge announced, and you know, they requested the case be dismissed, and the judge announced, you know, I'm not sure how I'm going to rule on this, but it appears we have a tavern owner who believes in the power of prayer and a congregation that doesn't. Now, let's look at a couple passages in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, says, therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. For we have spent enough of our past lifetime in doing the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lewdness, lusts, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. In regard to these, they think it strange that you do not run with them in the same flood of dissipation, speaking evil of you. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now, got to be careful as you read this because uh, he's not saying, hey, we've had our fun. Now it's time to get down to business and do the right thing. I can imagine a young person reading this and saying, hey, no fair. Uh, Peter got to live to a certain age with all the drinking parties and all the abominations. I haven't had that opportunity yet, so can I wait till I'm uh, 30 before I start taking this seriously? No, a better way of reading this is we have wasted enough time. We've wasted too much of our lives already. I'm thinking now of a story of a, an altar call that was answered by a 50-year-old man and an 8-year-old boy. They both went up and committed their lives to Christ at the same time, and the pastor uh, later referred to that saying one and a half people got saved today. And somebody chastised the pastor and said, you shouldn't refer to an eight-year-old boy as half a person just because he's young. And the pastor said, no, the half-life is, is the grown man because he only has the remainder of his years to walk out his salvation. That boy's whole life was saved. In 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in, in verse... Uh, mm, Actually, I'm going to start in verse 13. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Now our focus on that passage 
many times has been verse 15 because this is where when it says give an answer or a defense for anyone who asks of the hope that is within you that word defense or answer depending on your translation is the greek word apologia it's where we get apologetics defending the faith but here i want to notice the last part that we are going to be surrounded by people who will revile us make fun of us even curse us just for living righteous lives but the very conduct that triggers this reviling will ultimately shame those who are reviling us. Even better is this, 1 Peter chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of all time, beginning in verse 11. 1 Peter 2:11, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. We've talked about this before. This principle is woven through the word of God, but it is stated, I think, most succinctly here. The day of visitation, this is a phrase that I'll admit there's not universal agreement on among scholars, but I really do think the best way of understanding it is simply this, that there will be a day when those within your sphere of influence will come face to face with the truth of the gospel and what will cause them to choose or reject Christ at that moment is not their careful consideration of all the arguments, not an analysis of, of your apologetic, but rather your conduct, our conduct. As they observe our conduct, our behavior, our conversation, even though they may have been speaking against you, it'll have an effect. How many times have you heard Christianity described in terms that you would never dream of descri describing it with? Intolerant, hateful, judgmental, hypocritical, uh, and so on. But as they observe, again, not our arguments, although it's important to have the arguments. That same scriptural passage says we should have a ready defense, a ready answer. But as they observe, not these arguments, but our conduct, that is what has the potential to cause them to take that step of faith into trusting Christ for salvation. So as we say at Living Word, we live the gospel and we preach the gospel. Living it does, of course, mean enjoying the promises of God being manifested in our lives. We should, for our sakes and the sake of the world observing us, be walking in protection, in provision, and healing. But I'll add one more scripture from Peter here, this time in 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. But also, for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. You have been saved by grace through faith. Now add these things to your faith. You are not adding to the saving grace. That is a gift, a gift from God. This is the transformation I'm talking about, and it's the tension I'm talking about. We should indeed strive against sin, uh, practice discipline in becoming more godly in our behavior, but we must remember these things don't make us more righteous in the eyes of God. We have been clothed with Christ's righteousness because of his blood that has washed us clean. It's, that's a very real righteousness. What we are doing in this process of transformation 
is allowing the things that he deposits in us at the new birth to come out in our lifestyle. Just as the sin nature will always ultimately produce sinful acts, the new nature will produce righteous deeds. It's a struggle because guess what? We are still in this body which carries the stain, the remnants of the sin nature. Our flesh is still attracted to the things that, attra- that we found attractive in our unregenerate state. But the flesh can be trained. It can be disciplined. It can be put down. And the result is we store up lasting treasures in heaven. And more to the point of this sermon, we see others brought to Christ because of our faithfulness. We talk about this principle when it comes to giving. There are loads of, loads of scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, that talk about the connection between sowing and reaping, giving and receiving. And someone might say, I'm not into that prosperity stuff. I don't want to work any harder than I have to. And I'm not going to bother speaking faith over my supply because I just my needs and my desires are simple. I don't want or need any more than I have. And good for you. Again, this ain't all about you. If you have more, if you walk more in the blessing of provision and supply, yes, even prosperity, the more generous you can be. The bigger blessing you can be. The scriptural idea of prosperity for the New Testament believer is not the biggest house and the nicest things. It's 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. When we talk about liberty and freedom in Christ, we are not talking about license. He didn't free us to do everything we want to do. He freed us from sin. That's what's not always at the forefront of our thinking when we get saved. We don't get it. We don't get that he is not just rescuing us from hell. He is freeing us from the sin that has us bound here and now. When we talk about someone who is hell-bound, we usually mean they are going to hell. We need to think of them as being bound by hell, bound by sin. You and I, if we are believers, if we have trusted in the finished work of Christ, are going to heaven or heaven-bound. Can we think of heaven-bound in that fashion too? That we are not just going to heaven, we are bound to heaven, bound to the creator of heaven and earth. Isn't it significant that the New Testament writers, especially Paul, who wrote so much and teach us so much about what we know about our freedom in Christ, our liberty in Christ, also refer to themselves as bondservants and prisoners of Christ. This sentiment isn't strange to us. Secular songwriters express their feelings of love in terms of chains, cages, captivity. So when we look at how we are to live in the here and now, it should be easier than it is to forget this idea that we are trying to qualify for something or earn something. What we are doing is simply responding to the love of Christ that has captivated us. And now, here's the oblique reference. Perhaps more than at any other time in our lifetimes, people, uh, people need to see the difference between the people of God and the not people of God. We should stand out. People need to see that difference, and when they do see the difference, what they see should draw them to Christ and not cause them to blaspheme him. 
okay? Let's remember that we are heaven bound in two ways. Listen, if you've heard something, I talked about this day of visitation. If you've heard something, I know, as I mentioned last week, there are many people who are now, it's one of the great uh, side effects or silver linings in this whole thing, uh, people spending a lot of time on social media and seeing a lot of links to a lot of great sermons, a lot of great churches. And maybe you've heard something over the course of the last couple of weeks. Maybe you heard something here today that made you realize, you know, I have confronted the truth of the gospel, but I've never personally responded to it. You talk about being saved. You talk about the new birth, the new life, righteousness clothing me. That's what I want. Uh, it's what you should want. It's what we all need. It's what's necessary so that we wind up in heaven, but it also frees us starting now to be what we were created to be. If that's a decision you would like to make right now, I'm going to pray a prayer, a simple prayer. If you will pray it from your heart and mean it, guess what? You're part of the family of God. Then when I'm talking about the saved, when I'm talking about the people of God, I'm talking about you and us. But let's pray, and I will include that prayer uh, after I pray a general closing prayer here. Heavenly Father, thank you again for your word. Help us to remember that you gave us this word so that we could stay immersed in it, so that we could remind ourselves constantly that there is an expectation, that you have told us how to live, that yes, you love us exactly as you are, but you desire to see us thrive and flourish and prosper in every way, and you've told us how to do that, and you have taught us and instructed us and commanded us to live in a way that is going to bear fruit, not just in our lives, but in terms of other people coming into that saving knowledge of you through the finished work of your son. I lift up anybody now, Lord. I, want you, I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit does what only he can do. Touch hearts, convict sinners of their need for salvation, and cause them to pray this prayer now. Lord God, I am a sinner in need of salvation. And I believe what the written word says. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and I believe that he died for my sin and I believe that you have raised him from the dead. Lord Jesus, come into my life and don't leave me. Holy Spirit, come into my life and teach me and guide me into the truth, the saving truth of the eternal word of God. Thank you, Lord God, for becoming my father and my savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome to the kingdom. Welcome to the family. Hey, Living Word, uh, keep your eyes peeled for the newsletter. It'll be coming out soon. Thank you again for your continued support in so many ways, including your finances. I know these are tough times for a lot of people. Just this morning, heard a report that two-thirds of churches are suffering financially because of this crisis. Uh, and praise God, Living Word is not. Uh, I believe we are a blessed church, and I believe when I say that, that you, as part of this church, are personally blessed, and we together are blessed because of your faithfulness. I'll be sending out some emails. Remember, we are praying for you. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you soon. Hey, everybody. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you so much for being a part of this church family, of this body of Christ. We are excited very soon, hopefully, to come together again with you. Just like Pastor Scott said, 
it is such a blessing to see how tithes and offerings continue to come into the storehouse, continue to come into the church to support what Living Word Family Church is doing in our community and in mission, uh, with missionaries and, and, and uh, other ministries all around the world. We are excited to continue that support even through this challenging time. If you are interested in giving online, you can do so by going to our website, livingwordfamily.org, and in the top right corner, you'll see a link that says Give. That will take you to Tithely, uh, which is an online giving platform that we that, that we use. Uh, you can also go onto your App Store or Google Play and download the Tithely app there. Get everything set up, and you'll be ready to give in a matter of minutes. It's very easy to do, simple, safe, secure. You can also mail a check. You can get onto your bank account and uh, and set Living Word Family Church up as uh, as one of the automatic checks that you send out um, on a weekly basis or what have you. Any whatever way is easiest for you, we want to be able to to be there and, and and receive that from you. So thank you for being such a blessing. If you have any questions on Tithely on how to get it set up on Tithely, feel free to email. Uh, email me, uh, go through the church website, to fill out that contact form, and I'd be more than happy to walk you through that process. Thank you again. We appreciate you. We love you. Let me go ahead and close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the amazing faithfulness that you have shown us, continuing to provide and meet our needs, Father God, even through this uncertain time. Also want to thank you for the amazing, amazing church family that we have at Living Word Family Church, and thank you for the awesome faithfulness that they are showing and continuing to send tithes and offerings into the storehouse. Father God, for the work of the kingdom, and we thank you for that. We thank you that your faithfulness will shine on them as well and shine on all of us who continue to give. We are excited about what you have in store for us in the coming days, weeks, and months ahead, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.